I want to begin by reading our passage and then we'll pray. John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word, we ask that your spirit would illumine our minds and open our hearts to see and to respond to this truth that you are light and that we must live in that light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many Bruins does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many current UCLA Bruins does it take to screw in a light bulb? And before you begin to come up with a number, I think some of you are thinking about wattage and voltage and what kind of light bulb we're talking about, whether it's one of those or one of those or the one in your apartment. Some of you are thinking about the difference between nits and lumens and luminance, and I get you, great, good for you. Some of you are thinking about the efficiency of this kind of light bulb and which are legal in the LA area. Some of you are thinking about programming something to help dim the lights, or maybe right now turn them up a little bit. Some of you are thinking about making uh, an AI program to help with that as well, to replace all of the bruins it would take. It's not be unfair to our North Campus friends. They're probably thinking about the environmental impact of using this kind of light bulb, or uh, the ethical implications on third world countries when you're using that kind of light bulb in a first world country, or if we should even use artificial light at all, right? If you think about it too long, it might start to take everyone in this room to be able to screw in this light bulb. But that's only because no one got a ladder. You see, we have a tendency to overcomplicate things, to overthink things. We can tend to overcomplicate and overthink what it means to live the Christian life. First John presents a rather simple picture of the Christian life, even what may seem at first like an overly simple picture, uh, but I believe it provides such helpful clarity and simplicity to our thinking as Christians. In our passage tonight, John screws in the first century light bulb for us, and he has his hand on the light switch uh, so he can flicker it on and off a few times, showing us the simple yet profound truth in the paradigm of the Christian life that is 
light and darkness. Light and darkness. This is basic truth that you and I need every day. If it were to be on our minds when the light of the sun hits our eyes in the morning, it would help us so much. Because in a simple way, it reorients our thinking about sin and about our pursuit of holiness. This truth challenges our reasons and our excuses and our logic for living the way that we do. This truth gives us a reality check as to our integrity as followers of Christ. It's a simple truth that strips away the overcomplicated, overbaked layers of our self-justifying, self-preserving logic in the way that we live the Christian life. And it helps us to think rightly about holy living and about our sin and about forgiveness that we have in Christ. For some of you tonight, it's going to be kind of just like a gentle tap on the shoulder, a good reminder. For others of you, it will be like a knock on the door in the middle of the night. Simple truth and truth that can hit hard about the way we think about the Christian life. Tonight, I want to look at 1 John 1, 5 to 10 as a lens through which we can see the simple and yet profound concept of light in all of 1 John. And it begins with a simple truth that God is light. And so we ought to walk in that light. Let's look at life in the light under three headings. Let's call them three instructions for life in the light. The first instruction for life in the light is in verse 5, and it's simple. See the light. See the light. We talked last week at length about John's overall approach as he writes this epistle. He is the last remaining apostle, if you remember. The last living witness to have heard and seen and looked upon and touched the Savior. And so he is compelled to crystallize the truth about Christ for us and to encourage the true believers in the church that he is writing to as they've faced false teachers who have caused havoc and then left the church. And so he writes to reinstill and remind these believers and us of the truth about Christ. Look at verse 5 again with me. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Here John recalls what Jesus taught him when he walked with Jesus. And, and John wants to pass it on to these believers. Uh, at a baseline level, it's Jesus' teaching about the very nature of God, and it's that God is light. Now John's reasoning and argumentation in the first half of this book uh, is built on this simple idea that God is light. From chapter 1, verse 5, you could see all the way to chapter 3, verse 10, uh, many scholars like to look at the first half of the book as characterized by this theme, God is light. 
And then in a few weeks, we'll look at the dominant theme of the second half, uh, which is God is love. Chapter 3, verse 11 through chapter 5, verse 12. Here at the outset of the epistle, John wants to establish this truth about the very nature of God, that God is light. Now, it's a concept that we actually see all throughout Scripture. It's sort of, ironically, hidden in plain sight, if you think about it. Because if you read your Bible at all, you see it all the time. Think of passages like Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 119, 105, speaking of the word of God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then if you think about God's manifestations of himself in the Old Testament especially, and in his interactions with his people, you might think of him as manifesting himself as light. Now to be clear, we know John 4, 24 God is spirit. He has no physical form. But think of, and this isn't contrary, but think of the manifestations of the invisible God in the Bible that you probably can call to mind pretty quickly. Think of the burning bush. Or think of God's glory at Sinai when Moses asked to see the glory of God. Think of the pillar of cloud and then the pillar of fire leading the Israelites through the wilderness. And then in Numbers 9, when the tabernacle is established and built, the presence of God, the very presence of God in that same two forms, uh, same two manifestations, covers the tabernacle, uh, the cloud and the fire by night. You might think of 1 Timothy 6.16, where uh, Paul says that uh, he dwells in unapproachable light. Or the end of Revelation We'll get there at some point in morning service. Revelation 21 and 22 talk about the new Jerusalem. And uh, there in chapter 22, verse 5, it says, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This idea that God is light is familiar to us. It's common in the scriptures, but... What exactly does it mean? What point is John making here in 1 John 1 as he says God is light and in him is no darkness at all? Well, it's rooted in the fact that on the very first page of your Bible, God is the creator of all things. Turn there with me just to see it. It's always helpful to see it, right? Genesis 1. This is what James 1.17 is referring to. A verse we looked at a few weeks ago on Sunday where it calls him the father of lights. It's a reference to Genesis 1. And here we see in the beginning of all that God creates there on the first day. God speaks light into existence. Let's just start at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. And then on the fourth day, you drop down to verses 14 to 19, you would see God creates the sun and the moon and the stars. And on and on and on, God speaks every part of the universe, every aspect of his world into existence. You see, the eternal God who brought literal, physical light into this world, and not just light, but everything that exists, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. He is the source of all things, and he is the standard of all things, of life and morality and goodness and beauty. And against the darkness of a world that rebelled against him, God is light. Light and life and all things, physical and spiritual, came into being by the hand of God, and therefore he is the one by which any measure of truth or morality ought to be established. He is the ultimate reference point, the ultimate standard the originator and the arbiter of truth. He is the ultimate fount of wisdom and the source of all that is right and good. And he knows all because all knowledge comes from him. And so as the holy and perfect God, separate from his creation in category and in purity and in goodness and in light, He is light, as it were, shining into darkness. He is the very definition of moral perfection and intrinsic goodness and objective truth. There is no moral defect in him, and he does not have any lack of knowledge. This is our God, the God of light. And so light is a beautiful word picture a metaphor that is stemmed uh, in is stemming from uh, the reality of creation uh, that God is the source of all and the standard of all light is a beautiful picture about the nature of God Grace on campus can you see the significance and the simplicity of this reality that we need to recognize and understand this fundamental reality as a starting point in what we believe. We need first to see that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. There's an extra layer of depth here tucked into this truth that God is light. You see, 1 John is so dependent on, and we talked about this last week, on the gospel of John. And if you were uh, part of that this week, we read the first two chapters of the gospel of John. I hope you read. Uh, If not, catch up, jump in, be in chapter 3 with us this coming week. Uh, Turn there, though, to John 1, the gospel of John, John 1, 
And we need to see there the extra layer of what this means that God is light. What probably is at the forefront of John's mind and at the reader's minds in 1 John. Starting at the very beginning of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, that is John the Baptist, but came to bear witness about the light. These first eight verses show us the pre-existent Christ by whom all things were made. And it speaks of John the Baptist's witness about the coming light, the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for this one, this Messiah, this promised one. It was what Isaiah had spoken of, this great light that would shine into darkness. And here in the Gospel of John, John shows us this light shines in the darkness. And John, John the Baptist, bore witness about that light. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John here shows us gospel truth that Jesus, the true light, came into the world, and even though his own people did not receive him, there were some that did receive him, and he gave them the right to become children of God by his will and not theirs. And so we see the light came into the world, uh, the gospel truth, that if you place your faith in this Jesus who gave his life for our sins, you can too have the life that all of us have who know him. And then verse 14 of John 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from, his, uh, for from his fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God is light, the ultimate source and standard for truth and goodness and purity. No one has ever seen God, yet in Christ we have seen his glory. 
It's the message of John 1 and of 1 John. That we have received from his fullness grace upon grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so Christ has shown in fullness the glory of the very God who is light. I love the way that the Nicene Creed puts it. Describing Jesus, it says, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. That's why in John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in John 12, Jesus uh, says again of being the light. Uh, John 12, uh, verse 35. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Uh, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Uh, Jesus is speaking to the crowds in front of him and saying, you have the light of the world right in front of you. Believe while you still can. If you do not believe while the light of the world is right in front of you, you may continue in darkness. That was his message to those in front of him. And we now, even tonight, get to see in the Bible the very light of the world, Jesus, and the truth about him. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus, light of light, very God of very God, has made that light and the very life we can have in that light known to us. Grace upon grace. That's the message we have in John and that we have in 1 John. That's why 1 John 2.8 says the true light is already shining. It's a beautiful truth that we have the very revelation of God, the very pinnacle of light in Christ. The phrase fiat lux may be familiar to you, and it should be because it's UCLA's motto. Fiat lux may be familiar to you because you were either forced or tricked into those fiat lux freshman seminars. It's Latin for let there be light. We saw that in Genesis 1. The connotation, though, for, from a Bruin standpoint, is that there is more to be discovered, more to be discussed, uh, that progress is to be had in the human pursuit of truth, uh, in research. And so fiat lux here at UCLA, that's the motto. Well, the idea in 1 John and the idea in John is that we have all of the light that we need. In Christ, light of light, very God of very God, we have all the light we need. God is light, and in Christ, we have the fullness of that light. And so we ought simply to see that light tonight. See the true light come down from heaven 
and see the grace that it is from God. God is light, and he has been gracious to give us the light of the world, his own son, who brought light and life into this world. There's a second instruction for us, uh, for life in the light, and that is in verses 6 and 7. Walk in the light. Walk in the light. In verses 6 and 7, John builds a simple and practical theology based on the foundational truth that we just looked at, that God is light. John helps us to understand the simplicity of the Christian life using this paradigm of darkness and light. Look at verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now we need to remember that John is addressing believers here who, who have witnessed a reality in their midst not unlike the church today. Uh, they witnessed people who seemed uh, like believers, who claimed and said with their own two lips that, that they were believers, who said that they had fellowship with God. And yet John's assessment here is that they walk in darkness. These people say they know God, but as Jesus says in Matthew 15, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's what John sees here in the church that he's addressing with this letter. He sees the two-faced, hypocritical nature of the kind of life that these people live, and he calls it out. It's a big, fat lie. This is the emperor's new clothes, but with darkness and light. Except here, John is willing to tell it like it is. They say they're wearing light, but they've got darkness on. They live in a way that is contrary to God, and so John calls it out. You see, he's saying if someone is saying they are of the light, that they are of God, but they are walking in darkness, let's call it like it is, they are not of God, they are of darkness. John says they lie and do not practice, or they do not do the truth. It speaks of their way of life, their pattern of thinking, the way they conduct themselves on a daily, on a daily level. Before we go any further, I need to ask if this is you. Are you the kind of person that thinks that being here on a Friday night or going to church and waking up early on a Sunday makes you a Christian? Do you think that even saying that you're a Christian makes you a Christian? Uh, do you think that being with Christians makes you a Christian? This isn't a question of keeping count of the good in your life, and weighing it against the bad in your life. The question is, what is the reality of your life? What is the status of your very soul? If we could see with, with 1 John glasses on, would we see darkness or light in your heart? I think that's a question only God and only you can answer. But the point here, John is saying, is that if you walk in darkness, 
if you have a, a duality of life or a secret life or a life that exists on Thursday nights and Saturday nights, but you're here on Friday nights, God sees that. And it's not to scare you. It's to bring you to the light and help you see the truth of what your life really is, about the reality of your soul. In stark contrast here, John shows us what it means to walk in the light, what it means to have a consistency and an integrity of life. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, opposed to the way of walking in darkness, the way to follow God, the way to have true fellowship with him is to walk in the very same light that he himself is. To live by the truth and the purity and the goodness and the beauty of his design for our lives. To walk in the light is to live in obedience to him. To love God and to love others. To love and to learn and to live out his word in every area of life and at all times. And for as long as he has us here on this earth. Dependent entirely on his spirit's help and strength. That's what it means to walk in light. There's a consistency and an integrity of life in the light. The core essence of this sentiment is captured in Leviticus 19 and 20, and then it's quoted in 1 Peter 1.16. It's God saying, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Simple. It's a call for us who say that we are in the light to live as we are in the light, to live the truth of God, to live the love of God, to live the way that he has designed. If God is light, and he is, those who are his are children of light. If God is light, then we who are his should walk in that light. It's simple logic here. It's integrity. It's, it's logical. It's straightforward. And this word walk here, it's an ongoing reality. It just speaks of kind of moseying along. It's a funny Greek word, peripateo. Just think of a pair of, a pair of potatoes over there on the table. Peripateo is a way of life. It's an ongoing reality. It's the Greek word that helps you understand why Pilgrim's Progress is so fitting for us to think about the Christian life. It's used elsewhere for the same sort of reality, but from a different angle throughout the New Testament. Think of Ephesians 4.1. Uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Or, or Colossians 1.10. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is the Christian's walk. In 1 John, in the light of God. Elsewhere, in a manner worthy of God and His truth and His calling. 
This, friends, is life in the light. Now, John paints a pretty clear picture of the walk in light here in 1 John. In our passage tonight, and in chapter 3, verses 4 to 10, it means to resist sin. See, if you walk in light, you resist sin. Look at chapter 3, verse 10 for a moment. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John takes another angle in chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. Walking in the light means to obey Christ's commands. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And then skip down to the end, verse 5. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. To walk in the light is to obey the commands of Christ our Savior. Chapter 2, verses 8 to 11 show us that walking in light uh, means that you love your brother and you love God. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 8. It's a helpful verse. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. To walk in the light is to love your brother and to love God. And then finally in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, John shows that walking in the light means to not love the world but instead to love the things of God. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, walking in the light means all of these different things in 1 John. But it's simple logic. You see, if you walk in the light, you resist sin. If you walk in the light, you obey Christ's commands. If you walk in the light, you love your brother and you love God. If you walk in the light, you do not love the things of the world, but you love the things of God. The New Testament multiplies what this looks like. Uh, I love 1 Thessalonians 5 and the description there. Uh, I want you to see Ephesians 5. I think it's a helpful picture of darkness and light and what it truly means to walk as children of light. Look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 verse 8. Uh, let's start at 7. 
Ephesians 5, 7, speaking of the sons of disobedience in verse 6, Therefore do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. To walk in the light is to recognize and to renounce the selfish, sinless, godless ways of the world and instead to pursue a love for God and His truth and for others in the light of God's truth. Go back to 1 John. Notice there's blessings of this life in the light that come with. First, there is genuine fellowship both with the Father and with others, in this sort of faithful day-by-day pursuit of truth, this walk of holiness, there is such great benefit and blessing in the people who are walking with you. You see, you will find others who are walking in that same light, and there is sweet fellowship and connection and camaraderie, and communion. There is nothing quite like it to have a brother or a sister in Christ who walks in light with you. Notice secondly in this verse, there is another blessing in this life in the light. John says, the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. There is also in this life in the light a sanctifying sort of snowball effect that as you walk in the light, the darkness becomes darker to you. Your eyes begin to adjust to the light of the Son of God as you behold Him and as you see ever more clearly that path of obedience to Him in this life. It becomes a path of strength and trust and growth, and affection for Him. Friends, this is the Christian's life in the light, a walk of faithful living unto God. The reality of fellowship and growth in godliness as we walk in the light of God. 2 Peter 1.3, He has granted us all that we need for life and for godliness. So friends, let's live in that light with the consistency and integrity of God's children. There's a third and final instruction in this passage for life in the light. And it's this. Live in the warmth of the light. Live in the warmth of the light. I think as we look at this paradigm of light and darkness, it's easy to think that at this point we understand what's going on in this passage. It's 
kind of what we suspected, right, when we first read this passage. It's this kind of, okay, preacher guy in front. I get it now, I think. Do good things. Don't do bad things, right? Preacher, I think I get it. Go to church. Don't go out. Don't party. Don't have too much fun. Read your Bible. I think I get what you're saying and what John's saying right now. Be a good person, right? Because God saved you. As if John were holding up some sort of legalistic, moralistic expectation over us in the room right now. That if you're a Christian, you'll live and you'll act like one all the time without exception or else, right? That's a really pressurized place to be. This passage has been, and I hope you've understood it to be, a call to see and walk in the light with integrity and consistency, in actuality. It's an urge toward holiness. It's a very direct message. But I think the end of our passage here helps round things out just a little bit. It helps us to see clearly the grace of God in all of this. Verses 8 to 10 show us what it means to not only walk in the light with consistency and integrity, but it shows us how to live in the reality of this light. What I like to think of as the, the warmth of the light, that is the forgiveness and grace of our Savior. You see, apparently the people in John's day at this church or who had left this church insisted that not only were they of the light, even though they walked in darkness hypocritically, these people also apparently insisted that they had no sin. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There are people in churches and groups, even some here on this campus, who hold to this kind of errant theology. That there can be and normally should be a point of sinless perfection in the Christian life. But you don't have to be in this kind of error to have this kind of instinct. Right? Isn't that in all of us? We minimize and diminish the significance of our sin. We, we sweep it under the rug. We don't see it as nearly as sinful and egregious and as offensive to God as it really is. We would rather, we would rather write it off as just something we struggle with. It's a weakness of ours. Or we blame the people that were supposed to keep us accountable. They failed me. We go as far as to even question if something is actually sin. And then we blame others for being legalistic if they question that. What kind of a heart is that? Is that the kind of a heart that is open to the light that it walks in? Is that the kind of humble heart that has received grace and mercy and new life 
from a good God. I think instead, our hearts should look to God, the God of truth, the God who wants us to live holy lives, and to look at him thankfully, and to rather, when we sin, rightly think of ourselves, of indeed being guilty of our sin. That's an important first step. We need to take a little ownership over the fact that we are sinners and still are yet saved by grace. You see, if you deny the reality of your sin, whether in full in your theology or in part in your thinking, if the way that you deal with your sin is disregard and self-justification, then John is saying, perhaps you are not walking in the light at all. You are deceiving yourself, John says. The, The truth The light here is not in you. We'll come back to verse 9, but look at verse 10. It helps us understand this a little more. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You see, in doing this, we not only lie to ourselves, we make God a liar. And again, his word, John says, the light is not in us. You see, when we sidestep the reality of the culpability of our sin, we're self-deceived, but we're also saying that God is a liar. The God who says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The God who says, no one is righteous, not even one. We make him to be a liar if we make ourselves the exception to the reality of sin. In our lives. God's gracious antidote to this, both in salvation and in the Christian life. His gracious antidote, both as someone steps into the light for the first time and as you and I walk in the light, his provision is the precious forgiveness of Christ. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Precious forgiveness in Christ. I wonder if you've recently gotten up at a really early time, so early that it was still dark out. You fumble around, getting ready, get your stuff, looking at your clock, and you get ready to leave, and there's a moment where you have a hurried kind of fear. It's kind of feeling where you just look over your shoulder for a second as you pass through that one dark part in the hallway or in the stairway in your apartment. There's that dark corner or uh, maybe in the living room because you don't want to wake your apartment mates up. You leave the lights out and you have that sort of funky feeling. Maybe it's in the parking garage. I've had those moments, I'll admit. I get scared. It's okay. And it's sometimes that I realize a few moments before those scary moments, I get real smart about it. There's a solution. Turn on a light. 
you know, you can have Siri do it. I don't want to turn Siri on. You could flip the switch. But there's a solution to that look over your shoulder kind of feeling. It's to turn on a light. It helps you to see where you're going. Grace on campus, our natural instinct when we're caught with one foot in the darkness is to want to hide. We have fear, guilt, shame. We look over our shoulders, spiritually speaking, as if there were no forgiveness. But when we sin, not if, when we sin, all we need to do is turn to the light. I love Psalm 32. It describes this sort of opportunity that we have as God's people to turn from our sin and find forgiveness. David writes there, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away though my, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. There David is describing uh, the wasting away in his bones as he labors over his sin. He has not yet opened up his mouth and confessed his sin to God. But then verse 5 comes. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And in the wisdom of David, in admonishing us to confess our sin now and not to wait, he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What beauty of forgiveness. How blessed are we that our transgression is forgiven and that our sin is covered and that the Lord does not count iniquity against us. The blessing of forgiveness that we see in Psalm 32 is what is in 1 John 1, 9. You see, walking in the warmth of God's light helps our lives to be exposed and to see clearly, to see where we're going, and yes, to see that we can, and yes, to see our sin and to see our sin rightly, even. And then also to see that the truth of verse 9, the forgiveness we have in Him, is available to us. John says here, God is ever faithful to forgive our sins. It reminds me of Psalm 86. You, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then John also says here that God is just to forgive us. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, God is just to forgive us each and every time we sin because Christ has paid it all. So whether if for the first time tonight or for what seems like the umpteenth time for you, 
you confess your sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. That's the warmth and the assurance and the confidence of living in the light. Not that we can maintain our walk in the light perfectly on our own, but that we have the forgiveness of God in Christ. One theologian says this of this passage, those who walk in the light have an ongoing sense of needing forgiveness and being forgiven. It should be us. You see, knowing that your sins have been forgiven and that you can ever and always confess your sins because he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins, that fact, that reality should help you to live with the humility of someone who has been forgiven much and yet also with the confidence of someone who has the unshakable promise of eternal life. Knowing God's faithful and just forgiveness should help you take good inventory of your heart and to weed out sin and to live in a way that is forthright and honest before God and others. Not in secrecy and in shame, thinking judgment might still come upon you, but instead in gratitude and in fervor and in trust and in true faith. Friends, that's why when someone comes to you with their sin and confesses something, you have a, an opportunity to point them to the light of Christ and the hope of forgiveness. I hope that you do that. You see, life in the light is not like walking alone in the harsh wilderness. It's more like moving together with a group of friends uh, with the help of an experienced guide. Uh, life in the light is not like steering a ship in deep, dark waters. It's more like navigating with the guiding light of God and His Word with Christ as captain. There is still walking to be done and progress to be made. But you and I have the blessed guarantee of safe passage to our heavenly home. With this great hope and help of forgiveness along the way. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, and this is John writing about this. Here's that reason, and here's his intent here. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, it all goes back to Christ. It goes back to the message that He has given us. It goes back to Him being the advocate, and it goes back to Him being the payment for our sin. Christ has done it all. I think when we think of forgiveness and we think of these passage, this passage and the truths here, I think a, a question naturally comes to mind. What's the difference between someone who walks in darkness completely and someone who is walking in the light but is dealing with all kinds of sin 
constantly, seemingly, having to confess. What's the difference between these two kinds of people? I think it's the holy frustration befitting of weary travelers on the road to the celestial city that would have this kind of question. Someone who is so conscious of their sin and yet desiring to obey the Lord, that kind of person would ask this question. I know what that feels like, guys. Beating up yourself because you can't seem to overcome that sin. What's the difference? Life. Vitality. That you have new life. You are born of God, as 1 John says, and that you have eternal life. You see, those who walk in darkness completely do not have life. They are still spiritually dead. But those who walk in the light and yet deal with all manner of sin and embrace the forgiveness found in Christ, they have life. They are born of God and know God and have eternal life. And that's why we need to look at the theme of life next week here in 1 John. And Riley is going to help us with that. We need to see the, the twin truth to this life in the light that we've seen tonight. And that twin truth is the new life and the eternal life we have in Christ, the light of the world. I was reading this week about the International Dark Sky Association. You heard that, right? The IDA, the International Dark Sky Association. It's a group of 5,000 people whose mission it is to, quote, preserve and protect the nighttime environment and our heritage of dark skies through quality outdoor lighting. Now, the IDA takes this pretty seriously. Uh, they take various educational approaches, but they also have a, a very interesting list of international dark sky, what they call places, or also another list of international dark sky reserves. Places that they either police or ask, in, uh, ask local authorities to police for people to keep their lights off at night. I think that's all fancy talk for the IDA's real priority because it seems like it's light pollution, but I think it's really because they just want to see the stars. Stargazing, the IDA's top priority, is built on the same principle that a jeweler understands when he puts the diamond on a black cushion on the countertop. It's the same principle that the creator of the panda dunks understands. Black and white. It goes good. It's the same principle that Batman understands when he sees the symbol in the sky. You see, the darker the night, the brighter the light shines. I want to leave you with the words of Jesus. Jesus, the light of the world. You see, in John's theology, Jesus is the light of the world. In Matthew's theology, you are the light of the world. Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, simply by walking in the light, as he is in the light, you have the opportunity to be the light of the world in a dark place like this and to reflect the very light of Christ, who is light of light, very God of very God, graciously given to us that we might have life in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this group. I'm so thankful that we can look to your word and see uh, the need for us to live holy lives, to live and walk in the light as you are light and as he is in the light. God, help us, we ask. I think the whole first part of this passage makes us think that it's all up to us for a moment. But Lord, we need help. And so we ask that, that as we face trial and temptation, as we walk in a dark place here on this campus and Five days a week, we sit in classes that sometimes teach against the truth of the Word of God. Lord, we ask your help. We humbly ask your help. That you would help us to shine the light in a dark place, to be the light of the world, those having been given life by the light of the world, Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us be that light to this place and help keep us faithful, Lord, as we walk in the light. We thank you for your word, for in it we find truth. And tonight it's this simple truth that you are light, and so we ought to walk in that light. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.